zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Southern Comfort, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by Michael Caine, Walter Hill, and David Geiler, directed by Walter Hill, and released by 20th Century Fox. Not that Not Michael that Caine. Michael. <laughs> Director Hill wrote an early draft of the script five years earlier under the title The Prey, which would have made this an obvious double feature with Predator six years later, both of which also star Sonny Landham. I think it makes a perfect double feature with uh, Deliverance. Yes, yeah. that too. Hill and David Geiler had a deal with Fox to bring in cheap scripts, which resulted in titles like this and Alien, which Hill and Geiler collaborated on a sequel script for. Hill was particularly interested in this story after having worked in Louisiana before. The film's basic plot also bears a resemblance to Walter Hill's The Warriors, following a team of men just trying to get back to safety over the course of a weekend. Fox brought on screenwriter Michael Caine to do a draft of the story, and then Geiler and Hill rewrote from there. Hill has made it very clear that the movie was not intended as a Vietnam allegory, despite the fact that it clearly was! I think he just didn't want to do a complete retread of Borman's Deliverance, which it basically is. Yeah. yeah. Almost beat for beat. Yeah. I mean, I love the cast here, but it's not a different enough story to be a separate movie. The trailers and posters all mention Deliverance by name as well. Oh, do they really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you <laughs> like Deliverance, you'll like this. <laughs> yeah. It's not Deliverance. It's but you DiGiorno. Should... <laughs> <laughs> what was your punchline going to be, Richard? <laughs> I, I can't top that. <laughs> Like a pizza from Giorno, I cannot yeah. top it. <laughs> you, you can top those, can't you? I don't know. I'd never order one. You can't order Giorno. That's the point. <laughs> I mean, you can, right? I'm sure Amazon will deliver Giorno's. <laughs> <laughs> so it is delivery. The film opens in Louisiana, 1973. We see the local National Guard doing training exercises in the woods. I feel like the only point of setting this in 73 is because it's based on a true story, which this film is not. <laughs> <laughs> so why is it 73 instead of 81 when the film came out um i guess uh i guess to make it louisiana seem- still existed in 81 <laughs> and probably all of those areas were still stuck in the same time period they were in in 73 it feels like proximity to the vietnam war is the point yeah i guess yeah. i guess to make the technology of search and rescue and communication a I little guess. bit yeah, a maybe. little bit further back but yeah Hardin, played by Powers Booth, reports to Sergeant Poole, played by Peter Coyote. He admits to a recent transfer from El Paso, but also confesses that he wasn't a fan of either guard. Well, not liking the Texas guard makes sense. Not liking the Louisiana guard can get you into trouble with me. He has his second-in-command, Casper, escort Hardin to the second squad. The squad are firing blanks from fully automatic weapons straight into camera as men carry supplies back and forth in the foreground to emphasize the blanks. A man named Stucky makes a homophobic joke at the expense of a man named Bowden, and Bowden loses his cool. I feel like by rule, you're still, even when firing yep. blanks, never supposed to point a weapon at yeah. a person. Correct. Because even a blank can 
misfire and become a projectile. But these are National Guardsmen. They're not, you know, they're not the cream of the crop. Ooh. They're the crap of the crop. That's the point is that they're the people who couldn't get into the regular armed services. Is that how that works? Yeah, it's like a step above Border Patrol, which is a step above TSA. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get some letters. Yeah. The fight is quickly broken up by Keith Carradine and Fred Ward as Spencer and Reese. Reese complains about the absence of women here, and Spencer announces that he has arranged prostitutes for all the men at the close of this weekend's exercises. Bowden is disgusted. This is a new low, Spencer. Even for you. Two African-American soldiers, played by T.K. Carter and Franklin Seals, ask if they also have prostitutes coming. Hey, boy. The purpose of the National Guard is to keep you darker brothers away from decent Southern women. However, in the spirit of the New South, I have made full arrangements. Stucky, the Joker, calls to Casper as he walks away and then unloads a full clip of blanks at the man, scaring the shit out of him. Spencer and Hardin seem to make fast friends since everyone else is a moron. Look, these guys are okay. They just want to have a little fun with you being the new boy and all. They're not okay. They're just Louisiana versions of the same dumb rednecks I've been around my whole life. Poole returns to the squad and announces they're headed out on patrol overnight. He advises them to be prepared to enter the freezing cold water on this journey. He makes Cribs, played by T.K. Carter the Pace Man, out front. The opening titles play out over a montage of the men marching into the Louisiana swampland. As the men cross a stream, Reese pulls up a trap in the river and cuts it apart with a knife to make crossing easier for the men behind him, the first of many offenses to be committed against local trappers. Somehow, Poole gets lost and comes to a river where they didn't expect one. Reese finds a bunch of animal furs hanging around a camp. They seem like fresh kills. Sorry, what was the goal of this mission? Like, I don't feel like it's clear to me. It's literally just an exercise to prove endurance and Just get from point A to point B. Like, that's their only They're trying to get to a reconnaissance point over the course of the weekend. That's all they have to do. And they fucked that up? They, like, can't follow a map? Yeah, because they came to a river where they weren't expecting one, and so they stole some boats to get across it. I mean, I feel like he's saying that he didn't expect it here, and he's trying to excuse it as in it's flooded where it isn't normally flooded right. but i think that they're already lost. significantly lost yeah and later another guy's in charge and he also is getting them lost like these people seem to not know their way around yeah well um i i saw it differently because peter coyote's character is supposed to be a actual war veteran right yeah and so uh, and Coyote even mentions it in his dialogue he says well these rivers shift in the winters yeah but he says either i forgot how to read a map or or something's wrong right yeah um i was like okay well i would believe either yeah but um he seems to be the more competent i agree yeah at at least more so than casper is yeah to aid in crossing the river reese points to a pack of canoes called pirogues and the men can borrow them from the absent trappers the men all agree to borrowing the canoes because they have women waiting nolene and her bayou queens just a little something for morale really and let me add, Sergeant, that these women are expecting some uh, small unit military penetration. <laughs> is he saying they have small units? I think he is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, these women are expecting some tiny dick dudes to show up. <laughs> unless, unless that was like a joke about them having to get in the cold water. Oh, maybe. The Sergeant and Bowden don't like the idea, but are talked into leaving a note for the trappers. As they move downriver in the borrowed boats, Stucky spots a group they presume to be the trappers on shore. The sergeant and Bowden try to communicate that they've only borrowed the P-Rogues. And then Stucky pulls out his M60 loaded with blanks and unloads a clip toward the shoreline as the men duck for cover. 
Stucky thinks this is very funny, but he's the only one. As they try to move back downstream, one of the hunters takes a shot back at them and hits Poole in the head. Bowden freaks out to see the man's brains and blood splattered, and in his panic, he tips all the boats and the men have to swim to shore. Yeah, I, I didn't understand what his goal was. What Bowden's was? Yeah. He's just freaking out. He but doesn't know but why do. is he, like, tipping everyone over? Because you're Tyler, too. You're supposed to <laughs> yeah, tip a canoe. Yeah. Well, I figured it was to try to get them away from being easy Gunfire? targets like i think in the water it'd be harder to hit them than when Honestly, they're sitting in the boat it just reminded me of like jackie o when jfk's head is exploding where she's like trying to collect the bits of skull in case they can put him back together because oh. she's in shock she she can't just process what's, what's happening. happening i mean i'm in shock at this point because like i went into this not knowing anything about this movie right yeah i didn't read the description i i literally don't know anything except that there's you know men in uniform on the yeah. poster and I did not expect this. So yeah, this but, was very startling. And, and then you take it back to Deliverance where it's literally the same exact moment where yeah. you have the guy in the back of the boat who didn't cause all the problems but was there for it and yes. was shot in the head. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. It was very startling, very upsetting. But, but I like the encounter before they start opening fire is just like, we wrote you a note. Yeah, and <laughs> it seems like they don't speak English because they're not saying anything in response. It's yeah. Like, Go find the note. We're just borrowing them. And it's like, you're not going to bring these back. That, that was never the plan. It was like, we borrowed these boats, but we're not stealing them. We're going to park them downriver and you can come get them if you want. But they're not going to go to the reconnaissance and then row yeah. upstream back to where they yeah. got these boats. But I was so upset at Stucky at this moment. Like, that is the stupidest. Like, yep. nobody is going to know that you have blinks. So, yeah. And they probably, even after they shot your guy don't know that you weren't just a bad shot. Right, exactly. Because it seems like you were shooting at them. So yeah. they thought that you started this aggression and that, that is where this whole thing's going to stem from. Yeah, which is supposed to be the whole Vietnamese metaphor where it's like, you were in their territory, you did this to them, and that's why these people are shooting back at you now. Right. A few of the men step back into the river to drag Poole's body onto land. Reese starts loading up his gun with real bullets. Casper checks Poole's body for the map, but he was holding it when he was shot, so it's probably in the river with their compass somewhere. Stucky calls out Bowden for panicking and tipping all the boats, and he punches Stucky for firing on the trappers in the first place. The rest of the squad break up the fight pretty quickly. So again, this is where I think that it being set in the 70s, like that, I feel like in the early 80s, people would probably more be more likely to have watches with sure, yeah. like, you know, uh, complications of... Uh, I can't believe more of these guys that. don't just have compasses on them anyway. Yeah. They soon find out that even the radio went into the water. Stucky wants to go after the guys that shot Poole, and Reese suggests leaving Poole here since it makes no difference now that he's dead. Casper thinks the man deserves to be carried for being an American soldier, whether it makes practical sense or not. He's an American soldier. He's got a bronze star, a purple heart, a Vietnam service medal. We're not leaving him here. He pulls rank on everyone and demands they carry Poole for the rest of their mission. Like in Lifeboat earlier this season, the men argue about which way is which cardinal direction and how they're going to make it to civilization. When they stop for lunch, Spencer outs Reese as having brought a box of real bullets in case of emergency. Casper demands Reese hand over the bullets, and Reese points a rifle in his face. You come one step closer, Casper, and I'll give you something else. It's a court-martial offense, man. Harden sneaks up behind Reese and gets a knife to his throat, demanding he put the rifle down and hand over the bullets, and he complies. The men all divvy up Reese's bullets. That night, 
Cribs is on lookout, and Bowden criticizes him for smoking marijuana. Apparently, Bowden is a football coach, and his team sucks, but Cribs points out that the team he sells weed to went 10-0 last season, so it can't be all bad. Stucky and Reese conspire together to get revenge on Harden for taking his bullets. Franklin Seal's character, Sims, asks how the men can play cards right next to Poole's body, but they don't see the correlation, and neither do I. It's like, I don't know, how can you stand watch near his body? Yeah. Some of the men talk to Spencer about when the National Guard will start looking for them, and he suggests it'll be another day at least. The squad locates the cabin of the trappers, and smoke is rising from a chimney. They see a one-armed man on the porch, but he's far enough away that they couldn't possibly recognize him from earlier. You sure he's one of them? Of course for sure. What the hell do you think? Why don't you try talking to him before you start blowing his head off? Casper takes all the hot-headed men, Reese, Stucky, and Sims, with him to conduct a surprise attack on the cabin. All the reasonable men are left behind. Bowden goes crazy and charges past the advance team to put his rifle in the trapper's face. Sims cracks the man across the jaw with the butt of his gun. Stucky and Reese head into the cabin to investigate. The rest of the normal men arrive to the cabin, and Cribs makes a joke about their captive. Hey, did you have to cut his arm off too? <laughs> I love TK Carter. Inside the cabin, Reese finds a big box of dynamite. Lots of food, too. Casper considers it a successful raid. It's like, no, you're just stealing this guy's shit. Yeah. You have no idea who he is. Bowden heads into the cabin alone. Their prisoner speaks only thick Cajun French, and Spencer is relying on high school French to have a broken conversation with him. Inside the cabin, Bowden tears open his shirt and paints a red cross on his chest. He lights a Molotov cocktail and throws it into the cabin from the porch. Bowden, you dummy, there's dynamite in there! Everybody hits the deck and the cabin explodes in a dramatic blast. That'll teach him to fuck with us. Yeah, right, can't argue with that. What are you doing, Bowden? Went and blew the shit out of everything. Well, I do what I do. What'd you paint the cross in your chest for? It's part of the joke. What joke? It's a corporal joke, Private. <laughs> you don't get corporal jokes. When he throws the Molotov into that cabin, yeah, and they're all ducking for cover, but then they all peek up to watch it. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Put your head down. Yeah, that's the whole point of this. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm just going to point my sensitive eye parts at it. <laughs> yeah. All the soft tissue will do great. It'll absorb all the blast. It's, it's, it's like friggin' Burt Gummer at the end of Tremors 2. Yeah. No, 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 no. This is no good. It's going to be big. <laughs> you got to keep going. You got to keep going further. Somehow it's only occurring to Casper now that some of his men are psychopaths. As the men continue toward the interstate, Bowden tries to apologize for his actions and claims the cross on his chest is a reference to the biblical avenging angel. They don't understand. I don't either. <laughs> I don't either. I thought at least you might get it, Spencer. Sorry to disappoint you, coach. <laughs> Why Spencer? Yeah, he's been talking religion this whole time. Bowden supposes he should probably apologize to the rest of the men, too. I got news for you. He's nuts. I mean, really fucking nuts. This is not exactly news to the rest of us. Continuing through the woods, they come to eight rabbits hung from a tree to represent the eight men in this squad. They hear hunting dogs in the distance, and Sims is the only one who's excited to hear them, assuming for some reason that hunters might be on the way to save them. When the dogs arrive, alone, they are nasty Rottweilers who tackle Stucky and Harden to the ground. They have tight grips on both men's arms, and the rest of the men knock the dogs away with the butts of their rifles. Oh, why would you make that assumption that these would be good hunters when yeah. literally yeah. the people out trying to shoot at you 
We're also hunters. Right, exactly. Yeah. And also, why are they... They have knives. No, just bat them away. Just, just bat them away or <laughs> even use, use your gun as a gun. <laughs> <laughs> use the sword as a sword. <laughs> I know that they're trying to conserve ammo, but most of them seem to not care when they should be conserving ammo, but when right. they shouldn't be conserving ammo, yeah. they... If they, it comes to warning shots, then sure, let a bullet fly into the sky, but don't shoot a dog. It's got to be hard when there's a dog attacking you to not hit the person to just shoot at the dog. Yeah. But the knife would... Great plan. The captive tries to make a run for it, but Bowden catches up with him and tackles him into the leaves. Harden and Stucky are both messed up pretty good from the dog attack, but Cribs seems to have gotten it the worst. I didn't even see a dog hit him, but his arm is all torn up. Harden pulls Spencer aside to ask what is going on here because he thinks he was transferred to Louisiana on purpose as a target of whatever the hell is happening. Reese argues with Casper about having to carry Poole's body all this way through the swamp and Casper almost walks right into a collection of bear traps. Casper is shaken by the near-death experience and puts Cribs back on point. Now, see, this is when you make the captive walk point. Right, that makes sense. Because then he's going to be on the lookout right? for his yeah. own traps. They're only a couple hundred feet down the path when a board of wooden spikes rises from the water and impales Cribs in like 30 places at once. He bleeds out instantly, so he's dead in like 10 seconds. Like, when do they have time to set up this elaborate, like, first blood yeah, type? The like, moving punji trap? Yeah. It's been here this whole time. Did they smear feces on the spikes? You have to. It doesn't work otherwise. <laughs> I think it worked fine. <laughs> That's true. Because of the feces. <laughs> instant kill <laughs> plus two poison damage <laughs> plus two points embarrassment damage <laughs> that's the only reason to do it <laughs> not the infection <laughs> they bury cribs and pool side by side before moving on spencer suggests releasing their captive to appease the men hunting them casper refuses because he still considers this man directly responsible for pool and cribs's deaths even though he clearly isn't responsible for cribs's death yeah because he's been your captive too long Privately, Harden tells Spencer that he should volunteer as the new leadership, but Spencer thinks Harden's trying to get him in trouble with the National Guard. In the middle of the night, Bowden gets quiet and weird, and it freaks everybody out. They decide to tie him up too, so he doesn't pose a threat to them in the night. The next morning, Reese is using water torture to get information from the prisoner, and when he won't stop, Harden has to kick him in the face. Their captive starts shouting at the men in his language, and the English translation is basically him shouting for Harden to kill Reese. The two men get in a knife fight, and Reese gets Harden in the ribs once, but Harden ends it by stabbing Reese deep in the guts to a tree. Now, during this fight, like they're you know they're going at each other with a knife. Yeah. And then the captive yells in English, "Kill him!" And Harden mm -hmm. has like a moment. Yep. And I thought, oh, he's gonna he pretended yeah. to kill Reese to to to, to confuse like, this guy. Yeah. Uh, cause like maybe he could then like trick him into like giving me some information, give me some information. I just killed this guy to save your life. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, oh no, he, in the next shot, he's still dead and yeah. stabbed fully through himself to the yeah. tree. Yeah. I was like, oh man, I thought, I thought you had like some kind of moment. <laughs> nope. Nope. Harden releases the prisoner, seemingly framing him for Reese's murder, but nobody falls for it. Like they, they show up and they immediately know that Harden did this. They dig another hole in the pouring rain to bury Reese in the same place as the other men since they've apparently been going in circles. The next day, the men take a vote to determine a new leader, and Stucky sides with Casper on the condition that Harden is held accountable for killing Reese. But I feel like 
if he's held accountable for that, Stucky has to be held accountable for, for Poole's death. Yeah, that yeah. Poole yeah. got killed because it was his actions that prompted that. And, I mean, consequently, Cribs's death. Yeah. Spencer gets every other vote but Stucky's, so the other men are forced to follow. As the men continue marching, we get a lot of shots of empty terrain as foreshadowing for something, but it's unclear what so far. Sims keeps hearing sounds and fires some shots, drawing the attention of the other men who don't see anything. They continue marching, and suddenly, Sims takes more shots and seems completely crazy. He runs ahead of the squad, firing his weapon nonstop until he comes face to face with the bodies of the three men they've buried. At first, I assumed that we were supposed to think he was hallucinating this, but the other men confirm what he sees. They dug him up. They dug them all up. Suddenly, trees are tipping over all around them, and the men have to run to avoid the falling timber. I do not understand how this was accomplished. How they're doing it hidden, and how they chopped yeah. all these trees and set them up so that they could be carefully knocked over like dominoes. Well, and that, I mean, I get the, I guess the concept is that they're walking in circles. Yeah. So that's how they're able to dig three corpses up, run them ahead of them, tie them up, and then cut down trees to almost falling over in anticipation of them coming through this way. Yeah. Casper approaches the trappers in the woods and asks for cover from Sims's blanks and throws a grenade. Hardin takes a few shots at the passing trappers and hits one. Casper calls for a retreat, and as the men are running away, they hear a chopper overhead and try to make themselves visible to it. Unclear if they get the vehicle's attention, so Stucky chases it away waving desperately for it. Stucky is led into a pit of quicksand and slowly disappears under the surface while the helicopter watches. Nobody can hear his cries for help over the rotors of the chopper. Slowly manifests his name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say my name. Stucky. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so, like, I mean, is this a thing? Can you, like, it's obviously not quicksand because you're in a marsh, but can you get sucked into a marsh yeah. like that? Yeah, totally. That's a real thing. That actually happened to that actor. Spencer orders the five remaining men to split into two groups and fire their weapons if they locate the missing man. Casper and Sims are outnumbered by hunters quickly, and Casper sends Sims back to the other team. Casper takes the men on by himself with his bayonet mounted, but he's shot down by a trio of rifles and falls backward into the swamp. So this is this this irked me. Uh, they're firing all these shots, the hunters, yeah. like the Cajun hunters. They should have called the other team over. Right, yeah. exactly. It's like the other team doesn't even hear the shots. So what was the point of that plan? Yeah, that was the plan. Sims sees this happen and begs for mercy before also getting shot down. And then there were three. That night, Spencer asks Hardin about his home life and specifically if he's happily married. Yeah. I like her. She's got a good sense of humor. What's it to you? Well, I just thought if I got out of here and you didn't, maybe I'd look her up. <laughs> I said she had a good sense of humor. I don't. Yeah. Mine's stretched a bit thin, too, at the moment. Hardin points out that they freed their prisoner, but the men are still taking them out, so they'll have to win this battle to survive. The next morning, a train rolls by right behind the men and wakes them up. They find Bowden hanging from the tracks, and their escaped captive is standing above him. He speaks to them in plain English. I'm not going to kill you all if I don't got to. They got a bayou over here. Take it. Stay to the west side. We want to find a road about a mile up there. Do you mind telling us what's going on? It's real simple. We live back in here. This is our home and nobody don't fault with us. 
What about him? What about him? He advises them to leave now because his friends aren't so nice. He's like, state of the west side. It's like, we don't have a compass. That's the whole point. Yeah. We, we, we're lost. We don't understand. Just follow the goddamn train tracks. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Dude, just jump on those train tracks. Another one's going to come by eventually, and it's going somewhere that's populated. One of the times I was re-watching this movie, I was just listening to it and not looking at it, and every time Powers Booth talks, it sounds exactly like Tommy Lee Jones. They have the exact mm. same voice. Spencer and Hardin find the road and see a truck with pigs in the back before flagging it down. The man driving offers them a ride to the next town in his truck bed with the pigs. The ride ends in a crowded Cajun settlement. There's some kind of a big party going on, and the guardsmen are understandably uneasy. They learn quickly that there's no phone here, but there is food, and they're instructed to eat first, and then we'll take you somewhere with a phone. Just shut up and eat. Hardin wants to press on to the next town on foot, but Spencer thinks they're safer here with witnesses. I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> These people are all kin. They're all they're all of a, of a single hive mind, and they will yeah. kill you and string you up next to these pigs for no reason. Well, what was it Burt Reynolds that said it in Deliverance uh, that I don't want to go before a jury of these yeah, guys. Yeah, this guy's mothers and fathers, yeah. yeah. Through a window, Hardin spots a pair of trappers arriving by P-Rogue and worries aloud that they're the men that they've been avoiding. You think they're the ones that have been after us? Hell, I don't know. i never seen them. I think it's them. Don't go getting paranoid on me. I got reason to be paranoid, and so do you. They gotta kill us. We're the only witnesses. Don't sweat it. They can't pull anything here in front of everybody. Spencer is dragged onto the dance floor by a woman, but Hardin watches the trappers move around the camp. The pigs from the truck they rode in on are unceremoniously shot and bled out, and then hung from a platform to be carved for meat. That was hard to watch. That was an actual pig getting slaughtered. Yeah, but it seemed like that's how they do it in that town. That bothers yeah. me less. It's just food preparation. No, basically. I know. It's just, yeah. I didn't want to have to see it. No, that's fair. Harden collects a knife off the tables in here to pursue the men he thinks are here to kill him, or possibly to escape town. I couldn't tell what his intentions were. But he finds his path blocked by a man with a shotgun in the trees, so he returns to the party. The same man follows Hardin into an empty building and fires a shot into his shoulder. Hardin is bleeding out on the ground when the man points his gun again, and Spencer kicks in a door and fires a clip of blanks at the gunman, who isn't spooked at all, yeah. and turns his gun on Spencer. Hardin jams the knife he stole into the man's crotch and stabs him through the groin. Spencer makes a run for it, but the loud music of the party is masking the sounds of the chase. Hardin reappears to stab one of the men chasing him in the neck, and Spencer bayonets the same man before they run outside. We see the helicopter pass by again, and they follow it into the distance, and right around a corner, an army jeep rolls up, and the shot freezes on the emblem of a star on the passenger side door, and we fade to black. Um, this happened a couple of times during the stream. Was it going in like crazy slow motion? Yeah, I think that was on purpose. Okay. Um, I had a, an incident during the stream where it started like garbling out and going, getting all wonky. And, oh, yeah. And, and like I restarted it, and it was fine. So I was like, oh, man, is it messing up again? No, no. That's <laughs> just how the film ends. I didn't get what the ending was supposed to signify. I think to an American audience, the ending is that these men survived, that yeah. they, they made it to safety. There are armed forces here to protect them. It's not the National Guard. It's the Army. Yeah. But they're here. This this greater emergency has been communicated to the proper authorities, and yeah. they've made it to safety. It, it seems so ominous with yes. the slow yeah. down and then the zoom in, and they're looking at each other like, oh, shit. Well, what's weird, okay, so Iranian audiences got a very different cut of the film. 
Oh. In their version of the film, using voiceover and text on screen, the story is changed to indicate that a squad of Vietnam War protesting soldiers were dropped in this manhunting territory with blanks as a joke to be killed off one by one on purpose. Both versions end with the same imagery of the army jeep arriving, but the sounds of machine gun fire are added to imply that these last two men are being punished for surviving. Whoa. It was one of the most popular cuts of the film in any foreign market. Huh. Like it did wow. gangbusters there. Interesting. Because everyone thought it's like, oh, this is such a great retelling of how the American military treats their people. That it's like they put them in harm's way and then even when they think they're out of it, they're not out of it. Yeah. Huh. But it's a completely different movie yeah. for them. But yeah, that's uh, that's Southern Comfort. Like we've already said, it's kind of the same story as Deliverance, but with more guys. Yeah. I, I do feel like it adds something to it that they're National Guardsmen because it's like it's a whole troop of Burt Reynolds instead of yeah, being yeah, yeah. any of the other guys. It's just the like loose cannon weirdos who all think that they're like the alpha dog. Yes. But overall, it's it's a very weird uh like gray area story because at least in deliverance the the guys are pretty much in the clear doing the right thing even if they might be incriminating themselves a lot of the time they were attacked yeah. and and acting in self-defense whereas these guys clearly well that's screwed uh, things up for themselves honestly so i mean i like deliverance but i also really liked this movie yeah so and and i think it was those elements of the gray area that yeah. they did deserve a lot of what was coming to them for how they were treating people and places around them so i you know i thought it was really interesting yeah because you don't know exactly who to root for yeah because it's like do i root for some of the national guardsmen but they're all still acting as a unit and following orders from each other even if right two or three of them think what they're doing is a terrible idea and these people are just defending themselves from what seems to be an attack of their home yeah and can't from their point of view cannot be construed as anything else really right um, I think this movie makes the smart choice of ending where Deliverance kept going. Oh, like, yeah. And showing them try to, like, cover their tracks with yeah, the whole, like, conspiracy at the end. Yeah, because it's just, like, what what do they, what do Spencer and uh, Harden tell anybody? Like, Right, yeah. Wh- how do they explain what went on? Yeah, here? how do they explain that, oh, yeah, there, there are, like, four bodies in this town that you're going to find I guess right it's, now. It's easy enough to pin a lot of it on Stucky and be like this loose cannon guy fired a bunch of blanks at these trappers yeah. who shot back at us and we survived the onslaught. Yeah, because the only ones who presumably are left alive in this whole incident are Harden and Spencer. Like yeah. none of the none of the Cajun uh trappers Yeah, I guess yeah, all the trappers are dead too. Huh? Presumably. Well, yeah. except for the one that that told him to keep going and oh that's oh, true. Yeah, be on yeah. your way so he knows everything that happened and he also witnessed is it, is it Harden that murdered uh reese reese so yeah. he also witnessed that yeah which is another wrench to throw into the whole situation yeah. because now Harden is on the hook for a kill but it, like i said i think it's smart to to end there right like because because you just yeah i mean there's so much like what's gonna happen i don't know everything will probably get swept under the rug yeah i think it's definitely a thumbs up for me yeah it's a thumbs up yeah um i I, i'd say it's a thumbs up it's a for me it's a little bit of a reluctant thumbs up only again because it's i feel like deliverance is a better film uh but i i was intrigued by this movie yeah and i love the cast so much all these guys Um, are just 
favorites for different things. But but like Deliverance, um, I I don't know. I just like it's like I don't care about any of these people. Yeah. <laughs> like if 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 anyone in this group dies, it really doesn't bother me. Yeah. Because there's no one I identify with in this group. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's fair, but I think that that also makes it kind of interesting. Sure. Although I do think we're supposed to sort of identify with the Keith Carradine Spencer character the most, if not the Harden character. Yeah. But I, I do think Spencer is supposed to be our surrogate where we're like, oh, he's just a guy who doesn't take it that seriously. And he's just, I don't even understand why either one of them is there because Harden makes the point. Like, I didn't like the Texas guard. I don't like the Louisiana guard. And it's like, why are you here? Is there no way out of this program? Why did you sign up in the first place? You get transferred? Can you get transferred? In the it seems like guard? he got transferred against his will to this yeah. other guard. Yeah. Um, what are we thinking letterboxed? Um, you know, I don't have it too far down because I think it's a. It, it was pretty good. It was competently made. I have it at number 30 out of... What are we at now? I don't even know. 130 maybe? Oh, yeah. 30 out of 130. So it is just... Oops, I lost it. It's just below body heat and above the French lieutenant's woman. All right. Uh, I have it at 48, uh, which puts it below Nighthawks, but above Escaped Victory. Um, I liked it. I did. <laughs> I have it in 91 out of 130, um, which puts it just under Winter of Our Dreams and just above Carbon Copy. Uh, I was really excited looking at your list. It's like, oh, man, how'd you get your list to look like that? But now I'm realizing it's that a it's a of photograph of a screen. Because Chrome tries to murder my laptop when we record the podcast. It was, it was like this weird perspective. I know you couldn't see it, Jesse, but it so was like, much better. It was like, oh, that's great. It looks amazing. Um, shall we move into cast and crew here? Did I like it too much? No, I think I, I ranked it too low. Okay. Our writer-director here was Walter Hill. Before this, he wrote The Getaway and The Drowning Pool and wrote and directed Hard Times, The Driver, and The Warriors. We saw his work last season with The Long Writers, and next season he writes and directs 48 Hours. Later, he directs Brewster's Millions, Another 48 Hours, and Last Man Standing. He also has a story credit on Aliens. Writer Michael Caine, previously on this show, we've heard his work in Smokey and the Bandit 2, Hard Country, and Legend of the Lone Ranger. Later, he writes Jaws 3D, All the Right Moves, The Bear, and MacGyver episode Bitter Harvest, starring the Bear director, Richard C. Serafian. Writer David Geiler previously wrote Myra Breckenridge, The Parallax View, Fun with Dick and Jane. Later, he writes The Money Pit, the story for Aliens with Walter Hill, Beverly Hills Cop 2, the Alien 3 screenplay, and a credit on the Fun with Dick and Jane remake. He also has producer credits for the entire Alien franchise from the first one on. Uh, you know, watching this movie now gets me more excited for Aliens. It's yeah. just like, it's like, oh, let's just put all these characters <laughs> yep. in Aliens. Perfect. Music came from Ry Cooter. We actually saw him last year as a wedding band guitar player in The Long Riders, which he also composed from the same director. After this, he scores The Border... Paris, Texas, Streets of Fire, Brewster's Millions, Crossroads, Last Man Standing, and Primary Colors. Cinematographer here was Andrew Laszlo. He was the DP on Owl and the Pussycat, Out of Towners, Class of 44, The Fun House, First Blood, Streets of Fire, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins, Poltergeist 2, Inner Space, Star Trek V, Ghost Dad, and his final credit was on Newsies. The editor here was Freeman A. Davies. He previously cut The Warriors, and we've seen his work so far on the show with 
When Time Ran Out, and The Long Riders. After this, he cuts 48 Hours, Brainstorm, Streets of Fire, Brewster's Millions, Another 48 Hours, Last Man Standing, Supernova, and The Deadwood Pilot. And Deadwood obviously is going to keep coming back. I think yeah. Walter Hill directed some Deadwoods also, um, but lots of these people are on Deadwood. Keith Carradine played Spencer. He is the son of John Carradine. He's the brother of David and Robert Carradine, with whom he appeared last season in The Long Riders as the Younger Brothers. He was Buffalo Bill Cody in 1995's Wild Bill and then reprised the role on Deadwood. He voiced J. Jonah Jameson on the early 2000s Spider-Man series. One of the roles I always think of was FBI agent Frank Lundy on Showtime's Dexter. More recently, he was the president on Madam Secretary and John Dory Sr. on Fear the Walking Dead. Powers Booth played Hardin. After this, he was Andy in Red Dawn, the title character of an early 80s Philip Marlowe private eye TV series. He's Curly Bill Brocious in Tombstone, Alexander Haig in Nixon, Senator Rourke in Sin City 1 and 2. He's Cy Tolliver on Deadwood. He was VP Noah Daniels on 24 and Gideon Malik of the World Security Council in the MCU. But most importantly, he's Colonel Jim Faith in MacGruber. He was cast in this part on the strength of his turn playing Jim Jones in the miniseries Guiana Tragedy. Didn't we, uh, didn't we have him selling hankies in... Uh, yes, we did, actually. Uh, in Cruising. Cruising, there you go. He was the one who tells Al Pacino what each of them stands for. Yeah. Fred Ward played Reese. He was John Anglin in Escape from Alcatraz, and we saw him earlier in a minisode review of Cardiac Arrest as an EMT, and last season as Jack in Carney. He was Gus Grissom in The Right Stuff. He's Remo Williams in Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. But perhaps most importantly, he is Earl Bassett in Tremors. Franklin Seals, sorry. And Tremors too. And Tremors too. And I think uh, he came back for something on the TV series maybe. Franklin Seals played Sims. He was Jimmy Smith in The Onion Fields and Dexter Stuffins on Silver Spoons. T.K. Carter played Cribs. We had him as a chauffeur in Seems Like Old Times last year. He was also one of the doo-woppers in Hollywood Nights, and Jesse always points to Punky yeah. Brewster. Most importantly, he yeah. was Mike on Punky Brewster. More recently, he was one of the valet guys in Underground Aces this season, and he was captain in our minisode review of Seed of Innocence earlier this year. He's also Nalls in The Thing and a car wash employee in Corvette Summer, which I love. Lewis Smith played Stucky. He was Perfect Tommy in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. He's Charles Maine in the North and South miniseries. More recently, he has played Detective Marlowe in Adrenochrome and Adrenochrome 2. Lewis Smith also played Curly Bill Brocious in Lawrence Kasdan's Wyatt Earp, which is the same part we mentioned earlier being played by Powers Booth in George Cosmatos's Tombstone the previous year. Les Lanham played Casper. Not in a lot of other stuff. I thought I recognized him, and I went through his credits. I didn't recognize anything else. Peter Coyote played Poole. We saw him last season for his feature film debut in Die Laughing as the FBI agent. Later, he shows up in E.T., The Legend of Billie Jean, Jagged Edge, Sphere, Patch Adams, Aaron Brockovich, and A Walk to Remember. Alan Autry played Bowden. We had him in Popeye as Slug, a tough, last season. Later, he's Biff Brown in Brewster's Millions and Captain Bubba Skinner in 146 episodes of In the Heat of the Night. Brian James played Trapper. We saw him last as a banquet guard in Holy Moses, a man in a bar in The Jazz Singer, and a crapshooter in The Postman Always Rings Twice. He's Leon in Blade Runner, Kehoe in 48 Hours, and Courier Slash Requin in Tango and Cash, and General Monroe in The Fifth Element. Sonny Landham played Hunter. He was Billy Bear in 48 Hours, El Coyote and Firewalker, 
Billy in Predator, and Mr. Quick in Action Jackson. And the last credit I have here is for Ned Dowd, another of the Hunters. He played Oglethorpe in Slapshot, Butch, a tough, last season in Popeye. His most recent credit was as Dr. Nichols in Bottle Rocket. He has mostly producer credits on titles like Last of the Mohicans, The Three Musketeers, The Thirteenth Warrior, Shanghai Noon, Reign of Fire, and King Arthur. I think that's everything for Southern Comfort. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Donovan Moser. As a $5 patron of the show, Donovan now has access to 34 full-size 70s reviews and 41 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. For January of 1973, $5 patrons are choosing between the following eight titles. Black Mama, White Mama, Eddie Romero's exploitation Women in Prison film from a story by Jonathan Demme, starring Margaret Markov and Pam Greer. The Creeping Flesh, Freddie Francis's British horror film, about a scientist who adds water to bones from a paleontological discovery and resurrects an ancient monster starring Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. The Death Wheelers, Don Sharp's biker horror film about a psychopathic bike gang leader coerced into suicide by his Satanist mother and resurrected as a zombie. Nothing But the Night, Peter Sasdy's British horror film about a series of apparent suicides leading to a serial murder investigation, our second Christopher Lee slash Peter Cushing option for the month, the Offense, Sidney Lumet's neo-noir crime drama based on John Hopkins' stage play, This Story of Yours, about a detective who snaps while interrogating a suspected child molester. It stars Sean Connery, Trevor Howard, and Vivian Merchant. One-Armed Boxer, Jimmy Wang Yu's action drama about a student of martial arts learning to fight after the death of his master and the loss of an arm. Seamus, Buzz Kulik's action comedy about a man paid to recover stolen diamonds or the men responsible from a recent deadly heist. It stars Burt Reynolds and Diane Cannon. And Torso, Sergio Martino's horror mystery film about a string of gruesome murders on the campus of University of Perugia. It stars Susie Kendall, Tuna Amont, and Luke Miranda, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this coming January. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing True Confessions, which IMDb describes like so. A worldly ambitious Monsignor clashes with his older brother, a cynical Los Angeles homicide detective, who is investigating the brutal murder of a young prostitute. We leave you now with the trailer for True Confessions. Constant reminder to me that the flesh is weak. Give me that pious crap desk. To all municipal B school. I can't talk to you, I can't talk to anyone. Handwriting can be very useful in a case like this. Tommy, did he do it? I don't care when they killed her. I just don't care. You're in the Holy Ghost business, so you tell me about the Holy Ghost. I believe you. Which means that I should believe you. She was cut in two. 
You think it's an epidemic like the flu? Because you like power. Yes, I agree with you, but how could you get things done without using it? Are you worried about getting your picture in the paper when they take you down for questions? Remember something, Monsignor? You were there the day we met her. When you were running whores, I was your bagman in Wilshire Vice. I'm your confessor. You're my confessor in here, but you're wheeling deal out there, is that it? You're in here now. Or maybe he doesn't know what a bag man is, your brother. They don't teach them things like that at the seminary. This brother of yours is a little disturbed. You better watch out for him. Well, he very well might be right. Get up, get up, get up, get up. What are you doing? Get back! Tommy, did he do it? I don't care when they killed her. I just don't care. Go in peace. Here's what some people are saying about the Projection Booth podcast. Week after week, I'm mesmerized by the focus given great films and questionable films alike. But every episode is a learning and entertaining experience. This is hands down the best movie podcast. They cover so many different genres across so many years, from obscure movies to blockbusters. If there's only one podcast about movies and cinema that you listen to, make it this one. If you think you know everything about a certain movie, you are wrong. This podcast gives great insight on well-known classic cult movies and some not-so-well-known fringe films. Great interviews, great panel discussion, great podcast. Projection Booth is all the juicy discussion you've been dying to find. So layered, dense, and topically diverse. Not for amateurs or insouciant movie mooks. Projection Booth is one of those shows that is so informative, so well done, and so in-depth, it actually exceeds what you would think the movie would deserve. The Projection Booth Podcast, with new episodes available every week at ProjectionBoothPodcast.com.